This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Card carrying Basing at this point. Ben Alomar, director of sports analytics at ESPN. You stood next to Big Poppy, be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post game podcast. This is Cade Massey, host of Warden Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio Sirius XM Channel 132 every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics Live, Wednesday mornings, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. This is Cade Massey hosting with the whole crew. Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow. We are coming to you from Huntsman Hall at the Wharton School, the Business Radio Sirius XM studio looking out on the Locust Walk on a gorgeous fall morning here in October. We're going to be here for the next two hours. You guys can jump in here and join us. It's one eight four four wharton if you want to give us a shout, one 942 7866 Email us, radio at radio at com or hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is a great way to reach out to us, at WMoneyBall. We follow the whole world of sports analytics up there and try to keep you apprised of interesting goings-on throughout the week. We have a regular show this time in that we have guests at the bottom of this hour and the top of the next hour. We have interesting football-ish guests. We have a lot of football to talk to. Mid-season right now on both the college side and the pro side. But we're in the postseason for baseball. I bet these fellas have a few things to say if they want to talk about it because we've got some Yankee fans in here. We can talk about it. Come on. Let's start up with the Nationals <laughs> rolling over the Cardinals. Yeah, that is actually very big. I mean, talk about – I mean, the, they fought their way in with against the Brewers. They just destroyed uh, the Cardinals. This is this is great. And they, Well, they nipped the Dodgers along the way, too. They, they, just they just the that. Dodgers. The Dodgers, just that. Dodgers in five game, that was remarkable. So I think of you whenever I think of the Nats because yeah. you've got this relationship with those guys down there. Yeah. We've got this Penn alum. Who's Sam Andre Cohen is the assistant uh, general manager. Mm-hmm. Worked his way up through analytics. Is in charge of research and analytics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're not, they're, not, uh, they're not the Dodgers or the Yankees or the Rays even in terms of the size of the analytics. They do what they can with a modest-sized staff. They do a good job. Well, t- tell me about that, Adi, because there was this article, was it The Athletic? And The had, Athletic. had a piece about, um, you know, they, they clip the Dodgers, and then they make this big deal about beating this computer, this set of computers or whatever. I thought it was so overblown. I was surprised that there would be that much pent-up hostility toward an organization like the Dodgers. So, yeah, they're good with analytics, but are they really in that more advanced than the Cubs? Or? Well, the Nationals have a set-up computer. <laughs> I know. Everybody exactly. does. You know, that's why it, it, it seemed like it was a weird uh, thing to right. target on yeah. the Dodgers. I mean, you can target them for being big market. You can target them for a lot of things. But to target them for being analytics savvy when you yourself are not exactly analytics unsavvy. Well, the, the article mentioned that right. they, they say they are savvy, but they're not in the Dodgers sort of league in terms of the staff size. Right. I think a lot has to do with how you communicate. So this is the thing that I think is very important at, at the major league level. The analytics is done in the front office or the, the team of stat people. They got to get it down to the field. And that's a process by which it's a hugely uncertain and, and difficult. Well, is, is it more important to get it down to the field or is it more important to get it up 
farther up the front office to like kind of player acquisition. Well, th- that like actually, they're much they're, actually, right. they're pretty good at that. But t- we were talking about sort of matchups and setups and how, well, how you set how, who, who you when you pull a reliever. When I mean, this is a lot of the stuff that is really hard to get down to the field. Yeah, no, and that's the more noticeable. I, I just think in the longer term sense. I mean, I re- I remember when they signed Max Scherzer. We yep. were slamming that deal. Yeah, we just were. Just like the length and the amount of it. Well, right. yes, of and that, course. And that was, I mean, on the back end, it probably won't look all that awesome, but it is looking really awesome <laughs> so no, look, far. The, the, the reality is what this has, uh, what I've, when I now look at the postseason, it, it's taught me a lot of things that we've learned about analytics for a while. First of all, wins and losses are important, but they help, I mean, they get you in the playoffs, and they get you, but it's probably not the greatest predictor of postseason performance. Well, what The reason I say that, it relates to your comments about analytics and off the field versus mm-hmm. on, I'm now becoming convinced more and more that your formula that moves a team from good, very good, to championship contender is, you must have two lockdown starters. You do. And here's the thing. We look at the Nationals, and they have Strasburg and Scherzer. We look at the Astros, and they have Cole and Verlander. I look at the Yankees, and they have... Mm, Silent. No, no, no. Well, let me just say, let me say one good thing about Tanaka. And I think I may have even said this to High you. Various. No, no, no. <laughs> In seven postseason starts, that's all he has. I'm not cherry-picking. He's never given up more than two earned runs. He's gone six innings each of those starts. So during the regular season, season, he's high variance, but at least in the playoffs. He's been great. So, no, no, the point is, is that you need two great starters and you can win. They doesn't That's mean they're it the best team. Come on, it doesn't come mean on, they're the best us, team. Man. No, listen, no, so, so no. They, I mean, now we're just invented. This is the new season narrative. This I, is the new postseason narrative. We do, would, do it every year. We look at the teams that are winning and saying, this is what you need to win in the playoffs. And then next year, we'll, it'll be a different thing that you need. It, it's, you can win in a lot of different ways in the playoffs, mostly just by winning coin flips. Let's, let's exactly go back. Who was it that did this analysis? Maybe it was Michael Lopez, or at least he retweeted it. The, the the better team, the objectively evaluated better team, advances in the NBA playoffs approximately 80% of the yes. time. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he so, talked so, about that on the air here a couple and, weeks ago. And yeah. most of that 80%, the 20% is at the at the earlier, is, earlier is at the rounds. Upper, is the upper ends. I mean, <laughs> it's in the beginning, it's like lockdown. Like I, I see. So only yeah. later. So yeah. fine, fine, fine. Okay, so the, the neat analysis was how many games, and of course the NBA is typically playing four out of seven. Maybe the first round is three out of five, but typically four out of seven. So how many games would a series need to go in the other three major North American sports in order for the better team to advance 80% of the time? And it is I know absolutely... baseball is like 15 or 17. No, it's or... 71. It's yeah, absolutely it's absurdly high. <laughs> but, yeah. and two, so, uh, but real quickly, as soon as you get that number, you realize, I don't care what Eric is about to say, it's not going to be true. No matter well, what story he tells me. Okay, well, I mean, I'm, 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 having I'm, two shutdown starters does help. Yeah. Yeah. Let me fight back. Two, two things. First of all, I didn't say it was the only path. Yeah. I'm going to fight well, back. Let me, I'm going to fight back. Let, a little me, bit. let me qualify yeah. what I said. I don't. I'm not going to say that what Eric said isn't true. What I'm going to say is we can't know that it's true. No. Whenever you need 71 games to prove freaking right. anything. But, you, but there's, yeah. there's, there's, to compare NBA and baseball, baseball has far fewer teams. So you're looking already at the skill levels almost much more comparable than NBA where they take about half the teams. Right. And so there's, a, there's as I said, most of that NBA decision making or the, the slam dunks are in the early rounds. Right. So by so, the way, this is let's just quick shout out to Michael Mobison, the paradox of skill, whenever all parties are equally... That's right. Endow well, their he, skill, he, then the, the so what separates. Well, them here's an chance. analysis I will do for next week's show. Okay, 
I will look, and by the way, we can debate how you might define this. Let's, when I say two lockdown starters, let's at least say during the regular season performance, they were in the top 10 in some metric, okay? I will look at the postseason performance mm-hmm. of teams that have two teams, two starters in the top 10, Good. okay? And then yeah. I will compare their performance yeah. in the postseason against the others. And by the way, there's no way it's going to, and by the way, I never claimed 80%, but I would probably say before the series started, and the odds actually suggest this as well. I would say the Astros were probably a high 50s versus the Yankees low 40s. Well, the money line said it was better, that they were higher than that. But Astros it, were better or the Yankees were better? Astros are better. Okay, so even then. But even higher than that. Even higher. Yes, even higher. Yeah. Wow. And it was. Yeah. By the way, it's not. I mean, the Astros won a few more games, chump change more. The Yankees were a better hitting team than the Astros. So the betting line, matter of fact, I know what the betting line was on the first game. It was about minus one, 180, minus 180. One, minus 180. And so, by the way, and the reason, the reason, if this is true, the reason is true is because you can, you can get those guys more four starts. Four games. In they the can start four games. Yeah. You collect, and, and I mean, so, it's and, certainly true that uh, the Nationals, well, which I think brought up this whole conversation, they do have a feel to me like those 2001 uh, Diamond, Arizona Diamondbacks. Where I every time I tune agree. in to watch that game, yeah, you got the, either Scherzer or Strasburg or pitching. It's, it's, it's Randy Johnson, Kurt Schilling all over again. Yeah. It's right. crazy. But let me just – so think about the – first of all, let's look through. Except for the knockoff of the Dodgers, I think it's pretty much gone to chalk. I mean, what's if you think about the, the entirety of the playoffs, uh, there hasn't been any other upsets. It's I would have big, favored the Braves game. over the Cardinals, but I, I agree it's very close. It's been, and so and if Yankees dispatch the Twins, as you predicted. Well, that was guaranteed. That was, <laughs> in in insanity. No. But let's Some things but, are not but the, the Nationals. Based. I mean, think about the Nationals, and, we, and I remember sitting in, in your chair early in the season, and I was here uh, maybe by myself talking about baseball, and the beginning of the season, the, the it was supposed to be the Nationals, the Mets, and the and the and the and the Braves in that division, and the Braves were nowhere. I mean, we're doing well. The, the Nationals were at the bottom. The Mets were doing well. And, and I went and looked at the, the, the Nationals doing really badly in win-loss record, but their wins above replacement as a team, their Pythagorean, were much better than the Mets. And even though they had this terrible record that started the season, their peripherals were very good. Yeah. And the last two-thirds of the season, they played as well as the Dodgers. They were the best team in the National League. I see. So it, we look and at the, so just the even, record, which is 97 even, wins. That's nice. So even yeah. if even that series, which was the one upset so far, you that's think right. wasn't that surprising. Really was not that surprising. Given the fundamentals. And then when you throw in Eric's comment about two you know, amazing pitchers, those were those a pretty tight series. Well, speaking mm-hmm. of amazing pitchers, tell me a little bit, because you guys had to sit through Garrett. Cole last night, oh, and God. this guy just it wasn't re- last night. It was during the daytime. Let, just, just to be clear, <laughs> since May twenty seventh, which was you know an age ago, twenty five starts. Cole is nineteen and zero. His ERA is one point five nine. He's got two hundred fifty eight Ks to thirty nine bases on goal. Yeah, well, and last night was a quote unquote off night for yeah, him well, because he did not he get seven, double digit strikes. No, but let's also say he no, broke but, his no, but streak of like eleven straight double say, digit strikeout I, I, games. I watched the game and he was off in the following sense. He walked five batters, maybe yeah. more. When I stopped, no, he walked five. All right, he walked five. The Yankees left three men on in the first, two men on in the third, two men on in the fourth. Two men on in the fifth. Out. So they really? had not, uh, and may, obviously it ended up more for the game, yeah. but they had nine men left on base in the first five innings. So let me just say. It could have been Garrett, a very different story. It could have been a very different story. So mm-hmm. he was, I'll just say, he was good enough. And his, that's partly what you have to think about, which is his off day, if you want off, well, 
He pitched against the Yankees, the number one hitting team in baseball, and gave up zero runs right. on his off day. If it's a worse pitcher, <laughs> no, no yeah. let's say, give me an example. Suppose it's a, a very good pitcher. Suppose it's Paxson for the Yankees on his off day. He's given up five runs to the Astros <laughs> yeah. on his off Without day. Without a doubt. Yeah. But, so, you know, the thing about, about that yeah. game, which is, which is, you know, so you see the, the see these uh, these destruction of the Yankees, but... but um, a pitcher has the ability to bear down, and this is one of the, the difficulties, the challenges we have as an analyst. We like to tra- treat every pitch, every batting, as an IID observation. IID, but IID, uh, oh, independent, identically distributed distribution. So as somehow that they're doing their best they can every time, and we know that for batters, that's a pretty decent approximation. They get out there, they do as best as they can, and there's no way for they to, them to do better or worse in any given situation. But for a pitcher, that's not true. They can actually turn it on, turn it up. I mean, they have re- limited resources and energy. And, and okay, so hold on. Say more about this because the place in sports where I where I think we see this most clearly is in tennis, where folks will take a set off to recuperate. Right. Basically, mm-hmm. this is I think a very well known phenomenon. And I haven't thought about this with pitchers. So tell me more where you're coming from. You're basically saying, I mean, the only way you you, you can only turn it up if sometimes you don't have it turned up. So you're saying well, sometimes a, a they're starter not over has up. to. Uh, Performs at ninety percent, eighty-five to ninety percent, and that's why the relievers in today's in today's baseball have better records because they pitch a f- very few batters, a short short stints, and they give much more hundred percent effort. So, so the the starters, in order to make it for six seven innings, they have to give na- eighty-five to ninety percent, which does leave them the opportunity on some batters to ramp it up to ninety-five a hundred, and then of course maybe on the next one, uh, maybe potentially pull it back or not. It all depends on their conditioning. But when you get Runners on bases loaded with no outs. You see, Severino so did this. this. They are they put it all in. This is really surprising to me, and, yeah. I'm, and I'm going to remain a little bit skeptical. That's fine. So I, we, I, we would expect I, that. I, I know that <laughs> where I, we talk about this for control, that pitchers aren't going to have maximum exertion on a given pitch because they mostly can't control it as well as they want mm-hmm. to if they do that. And so we know for that reason they may not be maximally exerted on a given pitch. But for you to say that. I'm going to cruise through the lineup at whatever, let's even call it 92, 95%, not giving it 100% on every pitch in order to be sustained over a longer time is a little surprising to me. I would love to hear from, I mean, we, 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 you know, we could talk to Rick Peterson about this from a pitching coach or talk to some pitchers. We can have that conversation. I, I would, it's a fascinating idea. I mean, how do you decide how far to take it down? How do you say, so now well, you're saying and, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to give the, the minimum effort necessary to reach some threshold of success. And, and I and mean, this, this is somewhat empirically evaluatable, right? You could look at say, for example, you know, the sure. speed of pitches against less good, hitters, you know, like just break it. Like or, or with pitch, runners in scoring pitchers, position. Do mm-hmm. pitchers tend to pitch less hard to hitters they know are less good? Or right. in situations. Right. I think this or is an excellent research so, I mean, project. That's worth, yeah, uh, students, yeah. anyone out there <laughs> yeah. listening what I heard, here. What I yeah. heard last <laughs> night on the air, actually, they, they were saying about uh, Garrett Cole, was that in situations, let's say, it's, I'll make it up, it's a man on first 3-1 count. Now, if you're not, if you don't know that you have that extra gear, you might challenge the hitter on a pitch you, you wish you didn't throw. And Garrett Cole, he walks the batter. This was what was said on the air. He walks the batter. He's not worried. It's first and second. He's going to attack the next hitter, and maybe he's going to ramp it up to 100%. So he's not worried about 3-1 yeah. counts. He's not worried about putting men on base. He, he, that's, I'm just telling you the narrative. I'm yeah, saying no, it's that's... true. I'm just telling you the narrative that the announcers were giving is that mm-hmm. he can afford to attack the corners. He can afford to not have to challenge hitters in the way you would think because he knows okay, that if he needs to, I, he can. I, I like that, but that it feels a little bit different there. That's more like I'm going to nibble around. I'm going to try to get them. I'm, I'm going to risk throwing a ball here. 
and if I need to come back and be a little bit more central or take a little bit more chance with these guy with better stuff, I can do it. But I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of nibble around. That's different. Talking than, about strategy there. Yeah, that's yeah. different yeah. than exertion. Uh, I think it's a really interesting question, Nadi. Really interesting. I'd be lo- I'd love to hear from some pitchers about that pitching coaches. Guys, what what about the what about stands in what stands in front of you? Uh, so tell yeah. me, what, what are you, the, how are you guys feeling now? What is about the, the what are the what does the market say the chances are at this point? So they're down two one. Five thirty eight had it about two thirds one third. I think for the Astros right at this now. Point. Yeah, okay. right now. Okay, seems about right. So they got home field advantage back. Y'all said not that big in baseball. Just okay. To, particularly a seven game series. Look, okay. looking about two percent. I mean, okay, okay. Look, I think it comes down to uh, to have the Yankees to have a chance. Let's be realistic. If the Yankees were to lose, let's say there's a game tonight because of the rain. Let's say there's a game and they lose. They're down three one. Well, then you're going to have to beat Cole and Verlander because that's not who's pitching tonight. Yeah. So today's as close as there is in baseball to a must win. You've got to win tonight's game to have a realistic chance in the series. You, you, you say that, I'm sure you're right. But I, just, I mean, being kind of a casual observer over here, I can't tell you how many times over the last five and a half years we've been in the postseason and somebody has said, They've got this star pitcher. They've got this ace against them. There's no way yeah. they're going to win. And that, ace, no guy, ace, gets, that said, ace gets knocked out. Yeah, but I said two. They have to beat yeah. them both. No, they, they would do. Then have to beat them both. This is a struggle. They would have to beat them both. Uh, right. And so I would right. say that if the Yankees were to lose tonight, would you say the odds would be six to one or seven to one at that point? It has to be. Yeah. But well, just I mean, coin just, flips, just just coin flips, it would yeah, be yeah. one out of eight. It would be yeah. half. So, half, so half. I mean, right? I mean, I mean, obviously. Well, that's an interesting question. How much? That's a great point. Yeah. Let's imagine the Yankees lose today's game, so they're down three-one. Under just a fifty-fifty coin flipping model, it's a half times a half times a half. It's one out of eight. Yeah. How much below one out of eight do you think it would be? Given number one, two games are on the road, one are at home. Number two, Good they'd pitchers. have to beat both Cole. And Verlander. So your baseline, I like it. How much below one out of eight would it be? It I would don't, have I don't to think, be. Uh, for me, it wouldn't be much below at all. I, I would still kind of. So if the betting, I just want to be clear. The, I mean, you know, obviously, Cade and Rufus work on this all the time. Let's imagine I told you that you could get seven to one odds mm-hmm. on the Yankees if they lost tonight's game. You'd I'll have take to take it, right? Mm-hmm. You'd have to take that bet from a purely yeah. mm-hmm. expected you know, value point of view, you'd have to take it, right? Yeah. And yeah. I don't think the Vegas odds will be lower than one and eight. Well, here, I don't think they will here, be. Here's an interesting Vegas odds question for you. Would you. If you had Astros or the field to win the World Series? At this point? Yes, oh. today. Oh, because it started, it was the Nationals. <laughs> before the Nationals even won yeah. their series, they were the favorite to win the World Series. The Astros were? Because they were up three to nothing. Okay, and, so this, and, uh, this, yeah. Oh, the Nats were. The, the, the Nationals were up three okay, to nothing. Oh, they're, they're in. They're, they're in now. But now they're in. So they're. I, but I'm so telling you, I'm, I'm offering you. I'm no. I'm offering. No, he's offering you, me the I'm, field I'm right Astros now. Astros are the field. Yeah, Astros are the field. Oh, even I'm though the Nationals the are in. Okay, it's that's the rational thing to yeah. do. It seems, yeah. but but yeah. the the Astros are minus one hundred five to win the dang thing. Ah, uh, okay. So that basically, with the vigorous, they're under under fifty percent. But right at it. They should not be right I mean, they, I mean, they should not be right at it. They should be, according to my model, a third below it or so, right? Yeah, yeah something like that. Yeah. So, but yeah, because I mean, yeah. if it's two thirds, one third, and then 50 50, what you once go. get through so, the Yankees, they're 50% as far that, as I'm concerned. So, so that means, yeah, this means that they're, the they're going two to third, two thirds, one yeah, third. Yeah, the market's the really under, Correct. Uh, undervaluing the Nats. And really you is. just told me they were equal to the friggin' Dodgers, that the Dodgers wasn't an upset, basically. Yeah. I mean, look, they More, they were by like, the way, two thirds times two thirds is still four out of nine, which is 44%. That isn't even get you there. So yep. they have them as at least I, 70 30, 75 I just remember there's that 5% in there that they're. I know. The math is 75 25. 
25. You'd have to believe they have a three-quarters chance to beat the Nationals to get to 50%. That's shocking. So, guys, uh, what else around the world of sports, in particular on the football side, coming out of this weekend, what what do you what do you most think? What was the, the biggest Jets news? Won. The Jets won. <laughs> the Jets did win. <laughs> the Jets won. And the almost Eagles fans, turns out having you. your uh, franchise quarterback helps. Oh, my God. I, I, I want to so hear much. about I want to hear from the experts here. Is, is Darnold a good quarterback? A I am, mediocre well, he's quarterback? He's better than the one they had before. <laughs> no, we know that. Well, first, I'm just reveling in yeah. bodies. And there's, I've no, never I seen know. a smile this big from him. For I know, I know. It's I glorious. Mean, it's glorious. It great news. Um, that maybe that's because he's so unhappy about the Yankees. It means they have a future. Um, well, if Darnold is really good, they actually have a future. So I, yeah. we, we, popped, yes. we popped down at a bar at a restaurant late in the day on Sunday and looked up at the screen and found the Cowboys down a couple touchdowns to the Jets. I was like, what the heck's going yeah. on? And then I yeah. realized Darnold was in the game. I'm just slow right. on this thing. I missed the show last week, right? I am such a homer for Darnold. It's so weird. I watched him beat Texas as a sophomore or whatever it was and was so impressed with what he did. And then I liked him the best in that group that came out, that group of quarterbacks that came out. Mm-hmm. And then the guy who's gotten all the glory is the guy that I like the least. And so, I mean, that's that's Mayfield. So I'm all I'm all in on Darnold. Also, I think, I mean, he's got he's got this thing in college that he got knocked for, which was a lot of interceptions. And there's one line of thinking with interceptions that says you want a guy who's not scared to throw the ball. And Darnold's not scared to throw the ball. Now look, that can all obviously turn out against you, but you want someone who starts with some confidence like that and maybe dial it back a little bit as opposed to guys who don't have the confidence. I wish we, I wish the Buccaneers yeah. had a quarterback who's a little bit afraid <laughs> yeah, to throw no, the ball. Jameis Winston is not afraid to throw the ball at anybody, to say, After the first 10 passes, he had two inter- two completions and they were both to the uh, Carolina Panthers. Oh, I, it, it, yeah, that must be frustrating. But, and I think it's interesting, I, and I, in the context of us talking about Mayfield and Darnold, and oh, now the Jets' future is secure. Let us remember how excited we were yeah. about Jameis Winston and Marcus Mariota. Mariota. Oh, like recap. Three, four well, years been ago. Mariota's benched, right? He's out. Mariota, Mariota is got being replaced. I do not think Winston is. I, I no. Mean, Winston is not going to be with that team next year. No, he will not. That's right. So, I mean, neither of those two, number one and number two picks, are going to basically survive get more, by their team. Right, survive their first contract. Yeah. They will not be major they'll be starters. Back, they'll be backups for teams next year. Wow. That's just it's incredible. Amazing. It's amazing, so Tell me right? about Kyler Murray. What he do you want to know? Well, God he was the big, he was the number talk one. About Kyler Murray? Is, really? is that a high question? Too early. Just a few days after OU too... Pants, Texas, I got to talk about Kyler Murray. Wow. Oh, Pants. That was oh, a good I, game. A Let me just comment that, you know, the Cardinals aren't bad. You know, they're not a bad team. You know, they're good on, too good on Cliff. Good on Cliff for that. That's they're not surprising. A bad, they're, I'm just saying they're not a bad team. He's been playing well. They're two, three, and one. Um, you know, I know that's. I mean, they tied the first game of the season against the Lions. They're, yeah. you know, yeah. they're in that middle tier of teams. Again, I'll go back to your comment. Yeah. If it turns out Kyler, and we don't know this yet, if Kyler Murray turns out to be their franchise quarterback, remember they had drafted a quarterback the year before. Just for all our listeners, they had drafted Josh Rosen. Yeah. They traded him, so they drafted the number 10 quarterback the year before, got rid of him to draft number one in Kyler Murray. If they've got their franchise quarterback, they've got a future. So, we, we by the way, we have them at 31 out of 32. So the, the But the trouble with our model is that we don't adjust for surprisingly good first-year quarterbacks. It's, our model is mm-hmm. pretty heavily say these guys get better over time, and lately these first-year quarterbacks have outperformed. And so you need – this is the traditional model. We also have a bottom-up player-level model that Arizona would probably look better at. But, but I want to I want to, I want to tap the brakes on Arizona. We still have them t- 31st out of, out of 32. But I really like the conversation which asks when we take these, these highly drafted, highly touted quarterbacks – 
really takes two or three years before you oh know God, what yeah. they're really sure. about. Usually, for sure. Yeah. And uh, most of them... <laughs> The one exception, I would say the one exception I can remember in the last eight to 10 years would have been, I I think most people were pretty going to bank on Andrew Luck. I think most people knew, I mean, as much as you can know, he was going to be a great starting quarterback in the NFL. Wouldn't you say of all, I'm just saying, I'm saying it was certain. I'm just saying he was the most certain. Since Peyton Manning. Since Peyton Manning. Peyton Manning was 98 and Luck was whatever, eight, seven years ago, something like that. Between that, in that gap and that, whatever that was. He's the most certain that that people would have. And by the way, they both went to Indy. I yeah, mean, how, what fran- that franchise could not have gotten luckier with those two things. What else around the league? So on the well, on the Jets and Cowboys, for example, the um, there's like this there's like this little sub story going on over here where another reason to pull against the Cowboys that day is if you're a Longhorn is supposedly Jerry Jones is enamored of uh, Lincoln Riley, the head coach of Oklahoma, mm-hmm. and and having sat through that game, some of y'all said you've watched the game, but I mean, I have rarely sat through a game. Where I felt my team was so outcoached, yeah, and not just like a little bit. I mean, not not just like they, they got called a few cute plays. It was like schematically, they had answers for everything we did, and we had no answers for anything they did. So, can yeah. I ask a question about college football? Is the is the is the season uh, U-shaped in terms of importance? It starts very important in the beginning. The rest of the season, a lot of the games in the season are just not that in interesting. What sense? And then at the end, it gets very like how the, maybe because of the schedule. Is it the scheduling? Is that in what sense it's important? Uh, important um, interesting games. Uh, uh, so Zach, our, our assistant producer, Zach did a did a correlation, very much like we did with the NFL. Which two games of the season are consecutive are most predictive of their final result? And in the NFL, it's it's the it's the mid season that that's the most predictive, but the schedule is more balanced, and it's not the first two games, and that potentially has a lot to do with the quarterback. But we ran the same thing with college, and, and, and he showed me the result, and I didn't want to publicize it because I didn't believe it. I thought we may have an error, but now I'm starting to think maybe that's not true. That the first two games are actually very predictive in college, and it's the middle of the season that's not so much. So, and that's the, that because they're just the toss off games. That, well, the, the the thing that's systematically different about those first couple of games is that they're non conference. So I, I don't know whether I believe it or not, but the but there is a systematic difference that exists in college that does not exist in the NFL. Those first two games, when you you the thing is that's high variance. Sometimes you're playing really good teams like Auburn will go play Oregon, or sometimes you're Alabama playing you know whatever Ball State or something, um, and so. It's, you wouldn't necessarily think those are the most important, but if but if it's true, it's going to be because it's non-conference. Yeah, I thought if you know, speaking of college football, the big game that I watched, which was exciting, was the South Carolina Georgia game, and obviously there was the big upset. South Carolina yep. beat Georgia, and to me, I, I'd be I'd like to ask. I know you guys model out who's going to make the playoffs. Does it actually? I don't want to say eliminate. How dramatically, in your mind, Kate, did that reduce the probability? of two SEC teams in the final. That's that's what yeah. I meant by this chaos happened. Good, I yeah. just mean, and matter of fact, you could make an argument now where even a one-loss Alabama might not make it now. Yes, that's what I heard. That's the narrative I heard well, after Georgia lost the game. Because well, let, let's imagine right. Georgia beats Alabama now. You, it, that's it, right. So you have to think about two factors, though. It's not just the quality of the teams within the conference that's right. going to dictate whether they make the playoffs. It's their competition from teams outside the conference. And that is what has most changed over the course of the season. In the beginning of the year, 
we saw this great collection of teams within the SEC. We've always thought Alabama and Georgia, but all of a sudden people are realizing LSU is maybe in the same category or right behind them. And so the probability, we saw this before the season started, is like, it was like this little nightmare that pops up. You're like, hold on. Maybe three teams. Maybe chance of three teams from the SEC. And that's because we didn't yet know what the other conferences had to offer. We expected Clemson, but we didn't know what about you know the other three. Turns out the Pac-12 was kind of as bad as expected. The Oregon may slip up there eventually. But what has emerged is that Ohio State and Oklahoma are be- are even better than expected, even though expectations were high. And they are also more head and shoulders above their competition within the conference. So they're more likely to come through unscathed. And if you've got those kinds of people coming in from out, vying for it from other conferences, it just reduces the number of spots available for the SEC. The other thing I heard about was, is the SEC the highest, the conference with the highest probability of two teams in? I'm now starting to hear the Big Ten. I'm starting to hear there's a scenario where maybe two Big Ten teams make it, or is that unlikely? State being the other one, presumably? Or Ohio State, Ohio State, Wisconsin. Oh well, I mean, I yeah, I kind of. I guess I already had Ohio State in there if things kind of go as. Oh, as can, as can, can I ask I can a, a technical that, question? I can answer that empirically if you give me just one second. Sure. Ahead. So I'll, my question is, I'm looking up at the Massey Peabody rankings, and why is Clemson your fourth ranked team? Is that I mean, what is what in the data tells you that they're they're fourth? Given that yeah, a lot of people have questioned that they've you know they've run. I don't think they've been challenged this season. They were the national champions. What what makes them? Fourth. Oh, no, no. I was going to say, oh, you go ahead. So, I was going to say the opposite, but go ahead. I was going to say, why are they that high? Oh, okay. They, well, they, fine. They, I mean, look. I haven't watched them. We still have them in the absolute top tier of teams. I mean, they're basically, I mean, we're saying fourth, but, you know, they're a point and a half less than the second team. Oh, and so, so they're, they're basically. six points behind um, yeah, Alabama. We've had them five all season. Mm-hmm. So we haven't, they haven't moved that much for us. They are not doing offensively what people thought they would do. The quarterback, Trevor Lawrence, has just not been the all-world guy that he looked like last year. So instead of being the one or two best offense in the country, they're the fifth best offense in the country. Turns out that's enough to drop you a couple of spots. But it's they just haven't been... Are you giving me the answer. The, Trevor Lawrence hasn't looked ridiculous. That, that's the shortest answer. Yeah. But look, what's true, and this is one of the most interesting things that I've gotten more clarity on in the last week or two, around sports anyway, is that you can learn a lot from how a team plays against lesser competition. And people think that's not true. The, the narratives and the stories yeah. out there are that you never know until they play somebody real. So I, it's always, it, you know, I, I've been, I've been hearing that narrative a lot over the last few weeks. You hear in the, in the, absolutely they say it about the Pats. So let me just tell you, it, right. with, with, with Texas and Oklahoma, Oklahoma came in, you know, highly touted, having run over everybody, but having played nobody. And so the narrative within, I mean, the narrative on the outside was, well, we're going to find out. The narrative within the Longhorn community was they haven't played anybody. They're about to run into a real team. And, turns, and so it turns out that's a good question for analytics. Like, do we, do we properly adjust? Do we so well adjust for opponent that we can learn just as much if they play the 50th best team as if they play the fifth? Here's that's the a wonderful it is, question. It's a great question, but it's also a great test. So here's the empirical test. And we ran it this past week. And I'm, I'm, I love it, but I, I wish I'd run it years before. If you sufficiently adjust, then you shouldn't see any drift downstream as a result of who they played upstream. So here's what I mean. Take, a, take, a, take the history of college football teams and ask, let's look at their midseason, our estimate of how good they are at midseason, and then our estimate of how good they are at the end of the season. And that change. How, how does our opinion about a team change from midseason to end of season? And then ask, is that related to how difficult their schedule was in the first half of the season? If we fully adjust for opponents, then it will be unrelated to who they play. It will just be noise between midseason to the end of the season. There will be no relation. 
if we don't adjust properly, for example, so Oklahoma comes in, we think they're great. Turns out we didn't sufficiently adjust for the fact that they weren't playing anybody. That means that we'd expect their our evaluation of them to drift down over the rest of the season because we will have overestimated them. Strength of schedule will be in the model of forecasting and statistically significant. Yeah, so this and is, kind is of, it? So this is kind of a market efficiency test. This, yeah. this comes from my having spent too much time at the University of Chicago as a grad student. This is the kind of things you do to test market efficiency. And our, our model is like we've got absolutely no drift in our model. So we fully account. It, our, our rankings right now fully account for team strength in that opponent strength in that past opponent strength have no predictive value on our future rankings. So this says that this, this actually sobered me. I asked Rufus and I conjured this last week. He ran the analysis, got this result. And I was more sober about the Longhorns chances against OU having run that. So I was happy about the model, but I was, you know, more sober about and Texas. Is, is it also the case that uh, what you're doing for NFL is also Probably um, properly so, adjusting. Yeah, it's all the same methodology. So yeah. you're, you're you're basically saying is that margin of victory matters a lot. Yeah, this. Let's take it back to Audie's question. The reason I said all of that was Audie's saying, you know, can you, they seem to Clemson beats everybody? We're like, well, they're they're not, not playing anybody, enough. and they're not beating them by enough. So That's right. Margin of victory, because you're essentially power scores. You're, you're ultimately producing a power score, which is a prediction of the, the differential, and that Absolutely. matters. It so does. you got to walk all over your opponents to, to be That's real. Right. And in the end, it's a it's a it's kind of a it's a chalk mark in the pro column for analytics because if they're done well you can pull signal out of what looks like noisy information. Let me just ask you a yes-no question, which I've heard. Can a, if Clemson loses the ACC championship game, can they not make the playoffs? Can there be no team? If they, if they end up to be a one-loss team. Oh, for sure. Okay, so that's for sure. That's entirely possible. Even though they're the defending national champion. I'm not champion. saying for sure they would miss. I'm saying for sure that's a possibility. And it will depend on how many other people are there. If you've got, a, if you've got another great – I mean, what if LSU loses to Alabama and this in the season 11-1 and everyone thinks they're the fifth best team in the conference and then Clemson goes and loses to North Carolina or Wake Forest? They're going to put LSU in the playoff, in my opinion. And they, there's certainly a strong chance that they would. All right. All right, guys, that's been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. This is Cade Massey hosting with the whole crew, Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner, Eric Bradley, we've got Audie at least for another 20 minutes or so. He's got a classroom. No, oh, not today. Today is a uh, full hour. It's exam week. You gave him a walk. We gave them well. They, they are, they're taking exams. It's, so kind, of mid, it's kind of mid-semester. mid-semester. This, this is like a so reading a period or something. Full two hours. Oh, good. All right. Audie, Audie's here for the whole whole time. You guys can be here. Jump in here and give us a shout. one 844 Wharton. That's one 844 Give us an email. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Or hit us up on Twitter. At WMoneyBall is our account. At WMoneyBall. Great way to reach out to us. Hit us up with questions, ideas, suggestions, whatever you got. Coming up in this half hour... Delighted to welcome Eric Winston back to the show. Eric is the president of the NFL Players Association. He was unanimously elected for a third term just this past March. He played tackle in the NFL for Texans, Chiefs, Cardinals, and most recently the Bengals. He played college ball at the Miami, Florida, and uh, originally from Midland, Texas. Good West Texas boy. Eric, welcome back. How you guys doing? Doing well, sir. How are you? Good. Where are you calling in from this morning? I'm down in D.C. Are you full-time in D.C.? That, that's where yeah, they have you yeah. guys office, right? Yeah, our offices are here, and uh, we made the move about a year ago. 
uh, with uh, you know with Wharton and my uh, my wife was itching to get out of Texas. She's not from Texas, so she was <laughs> itching to get out of there after uh, 12 years down in Houston. So okay. we're uh, we're out there looking around and seeing what's next. That's great. Well, remind me, we talked with you last year during the Super Bowl, but I'm not remembering whether that was your first year or your second year in the executive MBA program. So that was my first year. So this is this is my second uh, year. We're in our fifth term, so we have six terms. It's kind of a trimester setup uh, with the summers and everything. So okay. this is the fall term and, and uh, coming around the corner. Good. You're still floating around then. The, the executive MBA program, for those folks who don't know, these guys work full time. And then they pop in here pretty much every other week to do a couple days of classes on a Friday and a Saturday. And I don't know how the wives and the children put up with this. I don't. I also don't know how you guys juggle all that you do. It's impressive. But we're glad that you chose Wharton, and we're glad to have you around. Listen, man, what are you thinking about these days? We got lots of questions for you, but I'm curious. Just you know, when you go into the office on DC, what are people calling about? What are people on you on you about? What are you worried about in the evenings? Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, a lot of my day and a lot of what we've been doing over the summer revolves around you know CBA stuff and uh, negotiations and and uh, thinking about that early uh, as the as the owners have asked. But uh, you know, it's it's a constant juggle. Whether it's it, whether it's that, whether it's uh, needs the players. Obviously, we we serve we serve our membership. So um, season there's uh, there's peak days like day where everyone's off and. There's a lot of guys that need things, and then there's uh, there's days obviously where they're working, and and so the the call volume or the the ask volume is a little lower, but uh, there's always something going on. We are we got we have a for profit arm as you guys know that licenses our IP as players, and so there's always interesting opportunities out there, especially now with all the technology and everything else that's that's popping up. So a lot of the uh, there's a lot of new business line possibilities. So there's always plenty going on. There's always plenty to do. And and uh, there's uh, there's always a, there's always a fire to put out somewhere. Well, it's interesting. You, you talked about two very big long term strategic issues. One, the, the collective bargaining agreement. And then and we want to hear more about that. And then you talked about the for-profit arm, which means, you know, we're, we're going to generate, we have ways of generating more revenue for our membership. And maybe that includes licensing uh, intellectual property. And so these are big strategic issues. But then you've also got the day-to-day kind of shop steward kind of stuff. And this, I, I hadn't thought about it in quite those terms because the press is always about the CBA. But I've, I've worked in union shops before, and I know these stewards, are they're walking around and they're hearing you know, complaints and issues and ways in which the membership needs to be represented. Can you give us just an example or two about the kinds of calls you get on Monday from players you said who need things? Like what's, what are just some examples? Well, I mean, you have, you have everything going on, right? We've got guys that obviously have some family issues, and that, that means – whether it's it's domestic inside, where they're hey you know it's a it's a it's a marriage, it's a relationship, it's kids, it's it's kids that might not be that uh, that the the man and the wife might not be together anymore. So they're trying to work those out. How do I do certain things? Who do I need to talk to? Uh, there's also you know long term or, or extended family issues, right? You have cousins coming out of the word work, uh, uh, brothers, sisters. You know how do I deal? A lot of it's you know, some of it that we try to do is just advice driven. You know, a lot of our player directors, the guys that interface with the players are former players themselves. Mm-hmm. And so they're able to, to counsel and to help and to get uh, people to the right thing. A lot of some of it's obviously money management, right? You know, who can I talk to? Is there a way to, um, 
vet certain uh, certain financial advisors, etc. Right. We have a program for that. Right. Uh, other other things is just you know, hey, uh, you know, I'm a little down right now, like what whatever that might be. So, I mean, there's a tons of range of issues. I mean, we're talking uh, a lot of healthcare issues, right? So whether it's for them, is this person covered under my health care? They're sick, or, or man, I, you know, if I get cut, am I going to immediately lose my health care? How does that work? Right. You know, are you vested? Are you not? So, it, it literally, there's so many variables that issues pop up um, all the time, and there's always new issues. You think you, oh, I got the answer for everything. Just give me the question, and then something comes up, and you're <laughs> right. like, man, I haven't really thought of it that way. And then obviously, you have grievances where a guy might, you know, is hurt and he, the team's going to cut him, but you can't cut a hurt player or you can, but hey, I'm in. So there's a grievance process that starts. I mean, there's just so many issues that are going around the office uh, constantly yep, yep. Uh, that that you think you, you'd get to all of them after after a while and you, and you don't. So there's just these new things going on. And again, these guys are just like everybody else. They're trying to figure it out. You know, when you were 22, 23, 24, um, I always tell people like you, you, you had the same problems, but their problems are times 10 because, you know, you add in some of the other issues, you add in some of the money issues, you add in some of the same issues, you add in all these other issues. And now that's, there's just the, this problems are so much more exponential and, yep. and it's, uh, you know, we're here for them. So Eric, this is Eric Bradlow. I wanted to ask you, since we're also an analytics show, I wanted to ask you how much of this discussion you have with players are about privacy and data privacy and you know who owns the data and can it be right. used for me against me how much of that is part of yeah. your daily discussion I, I mean we have those a lot and especially when you start thinking around cba talks and you know 10 years ago you know 2011 and i'm sure you guys look at 2011 from an analytics standpoint from a data gathering standpoint as the as the prehistoric age, right? I mean, that was something. So there's so many things that weren't really contemplated back then that are that are available now or, or look to be available in the next couple of years. And you're exactly right. You know, we have guys that uh, that say, "Hey, if you're going to strap that thing onto me, that's mine, right?" And 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 whatever you're pulling off there, I, I want access to that. I, I think it's mine first, and if I want to share it with you, I will. But if I don't, I don't. And we have other guys who. Who might be a little bit more moderate in the sense of, man, you know, that's that's going to be really good. It's going to help me train. And then to your point, you have you have some guys that are just like they're going to use this against me, and I, I don't want anything on me. And so you're you're constantly looking at those issues. We're constantly trying to be out there, whether it's you know it sounds hokey, but at some of these analytic conferences or uh, at some of the technology conferences, to constantly see what's what's out there, what's possible, talking to people like yourselves and and other people in the analytics business because of those issues, because you have, there's so many of those wide ranging issues of, okay, what's being gathered, what data is out there. And, and, and two, on, on our side, we also don't want to be defensive about it. We want to be offensive. Like, Hey, if there's something out there that can really substantially help the health and safety of our membership, what is it? And let's talk about it and let's see how that might be possible because that is something that I don't. I don't want to say that all. You know, all that's going to be used for for evil, right? I mean, there are some things, or there might be some things in the future that, hey, you know, there might be some some quality to that around the health and safety front, especially or training or preventative, whatever that might be, that guys should really think about using. You know, I don't know how close we are to that necessarily right now, but I mean, I, with the with the amount and the rate that it's. Uh, 
that it's changing, I, you know, I'm sure we're going to be there at some point. Well, this is something that I'd be interested to hear more of your perspective on. It's there are kind of there are two sides of this. One is to to protect the player's privacy and to make sure he's not exploited. And the other is to maximize the value of all of this technology. And the value can be um, in terms of developing players, or it can be injury prevention. Injury prevention, or it can be uh. revenue, new revenue sources for the league, which ultimately the players participate in. And the concern I've always had about this issue is that if the players can't trust the teams not to exploit them, then they're going to shy away from the technology, and everybody loses essentially. Like the pie is just smaller because you can't use this technology. You don't have better health. You don't have better revenue streams. You don't have better fan engagement because the players can't trust not to be exploited. If you, if you, if if that's true, if you do look at it that way, it is the quintessential example of needing collective action. It's like the union is exactly the right place yeah. to act here. Uh, there's no doubt. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, and listen, guys, there is, that's, there's no doubt that. And that's and that's unfortunate because when you think about the NFL, you think about it, you know it, it's 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 legally 32 separate franchises, right? And so within any group of 32, even if you just think of a 32 people or a classroom of 32 students, whatever that might be, you're going to have different actors, right? You're going to have oh, people yeah. that would say, "Oh, I would never do this." You have, "Oh, I'll do this if the if the incentives are right," and you have these other groups that might say, oh, "I'll do that regardless," right? So. Right. You have all these different actors, and unfortunately, a lot of times, and people always say, we get, I have to talk to coaches sometimes, like, well, why are you putting those restrictions on me? I never did that in the past. And it's to y'all's point, it's, yeah, I know you didn't, and I know you wouldn't, but sometimes these rules, unfortunately, have to be put towards the lowest common denominator because there's no other way to do it, and, and they don't do a good job of policing themselves right and that that, that's been with practice rules with work rules you think about all the things that the unions had to drag them kicking and screaming um on that but because they they refuse to police themselves right and so that's uh, to your point that that's that is a world that i think there's a lot of guys that hey i don't want to go too far that way because to your point this stuff really might be able to help me, mm-hmm. and I want I want the help if I can get it. So mm-hmm. it, it is a it is a tight rope that you have to walk, and it's it's not easy. Mm-hmm. We're talking to Eric Winston. Eric is the president of the NFL Players Association. He's in his third term now after being reelected unanimously this past March. He played offensive line for multiple teams, most recently the Bengals. After coming out of West Texas, a lauded recruit coming out of West Texas spurned the Texas hearts and went to Miami for college. I'm never going to let you go, <laughs> let you live that one down, Eric. Eric, you're talking about the CBA. I think many folks would be surprised that, you know, it's already in the press because you guys are already worried about it and you're already working on it. What are you doing on these things this far in advance? So this agreement goes through, I believe, the end of next season. So you've got a season yeah. and a half yeah. left under the old agreement, a 10-year agreement, but you're already working in some sense for this negotiation. Now we know how these things go. They're going to, you're going to start talking about it more formally sometime after the end of the 2020 season. And God knows nothing's going to get done until the summer of 2020 or 2021. Right? So you're talking about working on this two years in advance of getting really serious. What are you, and what, what does that look like? What work are you doing? Well, I mean, I, I guess I would say that there are some, I think some artificial deadlines out there in which I think ownership or players look at things and, 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 I think those deadlines could spur some action in advance. But but to your point, historically, these things have never got done before the deadline. So to do something like this out in advance is 
you know, does seem odd, right? And 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 to your point too, it, it, there's there's a very real chance it won't get done for another couple of years. So, uh, but I look at it like this: there's it's a voluminous uh, document, right? I mean, it's you know, hold your fingers out as far as you can, as far as you can from your thumb, and that's how thick the CBA is. So. There are so many issues out there, and there's so many things to talk about, right? When you start thinking about the, you know, I put them in buckets, right? I put them in wages, hours, working conditions, and health and safety. And then within those four buckets, you could go down on, you know, okay, how are shares of revenue shared, right? What are What is revenue as a definition? Right. Owners get certain credits and get certain deductions uh, on, like, so let's say, the sales tax of a ticket, right? So when you pay it for a ticket, right. that sales tax, well, they're, they're saying, well, I shouldn't have to put that sales tax in a bucket to be split because I'm double paying it, right? Mm-hmm. And so there are certain, there. I mean, you can go down a list, you know, as long as my arm of those sort of issues, and some of them will come to agreement on and say, yeah, you're probably right about that. And the other ones will say, no way, that's, that's your part of driving business, right? To drive a business, you have, you're going to incur some costs, and, and those shouldn't be shared, right, with the workers. Um, those, I mean, you can go down again. That's just in the revenue bucket. And then we start talking about hours. You start talking about all the new scientific uh, discoveries we've had since 11. You start talking about all the medical. You start talking about, okay, what is out there and how should that be changed and what, how should that be changed for the better and, and, and where, how does that look like? And that kind of buttresses up against health and safety and, and what's new out there and, and how can we make the game as safe as possible and continue down that path. So there is, I mean, there's just so many issues that I think need talking to. Obviously, there's you know, top tier issues or second tier issues. And, and some of those uh, do end up falling in certain lines, but, and, and, and to your point too, that's not, it's not like we're talking every day, right? Sometimes you go out and have a, have a two or three day meeting and then things might need to sit for a month, right? So yeah. these things aren't always continuous. I think they come in fits and spurts and at least that's been my experience in these negotiations that they come in fits and spurts. And I think, there are pockets in which there's times to get things done. And I think both sides know that. And, and you know, when we're going to hit one of those pockets, I, I think both sides want to be in a position to put their best foot forward. But, you know, we'll see. I, I think I think the players this time around uh, understand exactly what's at stake, understand exactly what they want. And, and, I, and I do. And I say that only with a slight pat on my back, but, but really towards <laughs> our executive director and, and the player directors that have gone out there tirelessly and educated our players every single year. We've been doing that for the last 18 months of just continuously drilling into them so that they understand the CBA and that they can make educated decisions about what they want. Because at the end of the day, this is it's about them, right? It's about, okay, what do I want? What do I want to see? What kind of rules do I want to work under? And what do I think is fair? And then it's a matter of now arming yourself to go out there and get it. So. We're in the process of all that, and a lot of that just takes a lot of time. And, and we, and the owners came to us and said we'd like to start this process early and see what happens. I've always been a guy that if you put your hand out halfway, I'll, I'll meet you the other halfway. Um, and as long as that continues, then we'll continue to meet. And if there comes to a point where we just can't get over a, a certain hurdle, then maybe we'll step back for a while and see if if, if a new idea pops up. But. That's the way we've played it so far, and, and we'll continue down that road as long as it's uh, 
it seems fruitful. Got it. Eric, we're down to just the last minute or two. Shane wants to jump in with a quick question. Yeah, I, I actually just wanted to kind of gauge uh, this far out, how much of these discussions are about these kind of more like kind of small issue or technical issues like, you know, particular medical devices, et cetera, versus these sort of larger issues like potentially right. dramatically changing the schedule, adding new games to the season, et cetera. And we've got about one minute, Eric. Sorry to give you such short time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'll do quick. It, it's both. It, it's it, we've had days where, I mean, we're in the minutiae. We're down in the thick weeds, and we're talking about some random grievance policy, right? And then we've had days where we're talking about those, those big issues. So some of them, uh, you know, are going to be settled after certain ones, but some of them don't have to be. And I think sometimes in these things you, you try to pick out some low-hanging fruit and get after that first and see if you can build some momentum. So we've done both. We're going to look at everything. There's times to talk about certain things. There's times not. So to kind of answer your question, we've, we've done both, and we'll can probably continue to do both. Terrific. Listen, man, there's a, a lot of work there, and the way you describe it, you come away appreciating there's even more than we know, and we wish you the best with it. And, uh, Eric, glad you're, glad you're with us for the next year here around the Wharton School, and we hope to talk to you more down the road. Guys, thanks so much for having me. Call me anytime. Absolutely. That was Eric Winston. Eric is president of the NFLPA. After a long NFL career, he was an offensive lineman there. He's located out of D.C. He's an executive NBA student here at the University of Pennsylvania. Fellas, what, when you react to that, I, I hear them talk. It sounds like, sounds, like, sounds like so much fun. I mean, there's like so it's, much interesting it's stuff. It's tons of detail, and I think yeah. he, he some, summarized it. A lot has changed in 10 years, and, you know, what technology is going to change things, um, just, just the impact of that on the CBA will be huge. Everything we talk about all the time. Right, seriously. And, you, you know, usually when you think about as a kid, especially these strikes would happen, and your only concern was we're not getting football. Whenever you hear about what they're talking about, these are big issues. No, I, the more I, I hear about it, the more complicated it sounds. I'm like, it's it's a wonder that they ever can yeah. get a, a document together where they can hash out an agreement on these well, things. Well, and the next thing, next yeah. step after that is we're going to miss some football in 2021. Um, yeah. this, that's That would be, I mean, Eric would hate that that's one of our inferences, but it's hard to imagine them getting all of these things sorted because these are big issues. They're longstanding yeah. issues. They're going to be longstanding. Great fun. Great fun. All right, guys, that's been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics Live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Coming to you from SiriusXM Business Radio Studios in Huntsman Hall, the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. Cade Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew. All my buddies, faculty, colleagues, and longtime Wharton Moneyball collaborators, Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen. It's a treat to have Audie into the 9 o'clock hour here in the fall. He's usually yeah, doing to be here. teaching-type things somewhere with some students, but they're on reading period in the middle of fall breaks. So we've got Audie for the extra half hour. Just off the phone with Eric Winston, NFLPA prez, multiple Wharton Moneyball guest and executive MBA here at the University of Pennsylvania. Winston, fascinating conversation as always. That CBA is going to be really interesting to watch for the next uh, year and a half, coming up on two years. In this half hour, Sam Monson. Sam is joining us. He is Pro Football Focus's lead NFL analyst. He's also their director of consumer operations, and we don't know what that means, so we're going to find out. But always good to talk to the PFF guy, Sam. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Delighted to have you. You're calling, I'm guessing, from Cincinnati. Where are you calling in from this morning? I am. I am calling from Cincinnati HQ, PFF HQ here. All right. Um, this building used to be like a like a film um, 
sort of housing place for like uh, cinemas and that kind of thing. So there's a okay. bunch of like brick caves that are just these tiny little holes <laughs> in the wall. Currently, I'm sitting in one of them. Oh uh, God! This is our like this is our radio and kind of podcast um, spot. Got it. Got it. All right. How many folks do you have now at, at PFF HQ in Cincinnati? I think we've probably got like uh, probably 30 or 40 people in this building at this stage. Okay. Y'all are doing, y'all are hitting some seriously yeah, it, high it, it profile. It must have been a for... fun moment when you guys realized you had a radio and podcast devoted spot. That's kind of exciting, <laughs> right? I mean, it would have been exciting if it wasn't, like I say, just a small brick hovel yeah. in the wall that used to house <laughs> film somewhere. Right. Sam, you you guys, you know, we know some of the backstory there uh, with Neil starting the saying and then and then Chris Collinsworth getting interested. But it's never it's 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 always surprised me how there's always individual backstories as well. And and we understand you're a rugby coach. How do you go from being a rugby coach and you're from Ireland originally to becoming the lead NFL analyst in Cincinnati, Ohio? Yeah, I mean, the the rugby coach thing was only something I did part-time when I was in college. So that was never really a, a career. That was just a, sort okay. of, uh, just a part-time job. But really, I was I was lucky enough to know Neil Hornsby when he was setting up PFF. Um, he, all, of the, all of the original PFF people all came from basically a, an online chat board, the, the NFL UK, the official sort of NFL message board. And you know, when Neil set up this system... He, he needed guys to help come on and start grading games. Um, and that was the place he turned. He was like, well, these guys know football. You know, I, I know what they're doing. Um, I, can, I, I already kind of know them. So that was where he t- turned to for people to help start grading games. And Ben Stockwell, I think, was the first guy in the building. And then you know, I was one of the next um, in terms of people that came on and helped started to, to build this thing. That's outstanding. How do you overcome the stereotype? Look, we're, we're all battling you know, if you're if you're working on analytics, if you, and you haven't played the game at that level, you've got a credibility gap with the decision makers in the league, most decision makers in the league, and you've yeah, got this in spades because you're you're not even American. Matty didn't grow up watching American football, and you're going to be the you're going to be the PFF lead NFL analyst. How do you overcome that? Well, the good thing is is that um, I'm losing my accent by the day, so <laughs> that helps. Um, yeah, I hear nothing. <laughs> The other thing is when you're talking to these people, you know, it's it's maybe difficult to sort of drop it in. You know, if you're coming cold and they don't know who you are, they're probably not going to listen to you. But, you know, if you're in a if you're talking to these guys and you're able to sit down, it doesn't take very long to understand whether somebody knows about football or not. And that's really been the key to our success is when we've been able to get the right people in the room and, and talk them through a, what it is we do, and B, just talking football, they understand that we know, you know, what it is we're doing. We've got a couple of former NFL coaches that are in the building right now, you know, just watching film at PFF HQ. Mm-hmm. And, you know, same story. You, you just talk to these guys a little bit, and as soon as they understand, oh, these guys, they know what they're talking about. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not just some, some nerds tapping away on computers that don't actually have any idea what it relates to, what it translates to, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. then they, you know, they get pretty receptive. Mm-hmm. You know, on, along those lines, I've I've always kind of defended your. I mean, the, I think your first traction with the league came from just having chart data, right? Everybody wants you're able to tell people about scout other teams for them, but long before any other data were available. But then you've also always had these scout data, and there's always skepticism about outsiders being able to evaluate how you know a guy did on a play because you don't know what was called, you don't know what his responsibilities were. 
But, you know, I know from experience that you you can pull signal out of those data. Like, they're not perfect. I understand they're not perfect, and there's some noise here and there. There's a lot of noise. But you can pull signal. There's real value in what you guys are doing. But I know there, there's a, there's kind of a an ethos gap you have to you have to you have to overcome with the league before they start buying that stuff. I feel like y'all are making a lot of traction though. And my gosh, you've got such a profile now. You've got every NFL team, you've got Sunday night football obviously. You were the first folks talking about basically event data in the NFL, chart chart-based data on the NFL that now the whole world's talking about because they've got motion tracking. You kind of changed the language. You started introducing stats. You that all of that has been a huge contribution, it seems to me, to the conversation about the NFL. Yeah, and I, you know, thanks for saying it, but I think you're right. I think we've made a lot of inroads, and it, it did. It, t- it took a lot of years. You know, we chipped away at these teams piece by piece, and it did take getting in front of these guys one by one to get them to buy into what we were doing. And as you say, I think the the way teams are understanding how to use this stuff is changing as well. You know, we're it's never going to be perfect because we're not in the room and we don't know the specific play call and more not even the specific play call but the specific wrinkles that each team has to right. change certain things you know right. because i think some of the misunderstanding is that you know you say well you don't know what was you don't know anything about what was called and you know the bottom line is most teams have the same kind of basic plays in their arsenal on both sides of the ball you know everybody right. runs some variant of cover one everybody runs some variant of inside zone and they're not that hard to pick out. You know, you can see that everybody can. <laughs> right. um, where it gets difficult is that certain teams will have certain rules and certain um, changes to, to those basic plays based off who they're playing or just their system and all those kind of things. Right. And, and that can be where it gets kind of tricky. But that's where, you know, a given play, a given player on a given play, we may be led astray. But the bigger point is, you know, players are playing a thousand snaps a season. Exactly. And because you get a couple of them wrong here or there, does that mean that it's it's worse than not looking at it at all? Exactly. And the answer is no. You know, when you when you do start to break it down and start to evaluate every single player on every single play, the fact that you're not able to be perfect doesn't still make the system better than anything else that's out there. Mm-hmm. So, so Sam, this is uh, Eric Bradlow. You know, I was as I was watching yesterday's. You'll see the relation in a second. I was watching yesterday's presidential debate. They were talking about the role of artificial intelligence and its role in jobs. So, let me ask you: If we're sitting here interviewing you ten years from now, are there thirty people at PFF, but they're doing something different because all of the motion tracking, all of the artificial intelligence, video systems will be automated, and you guys will be focusing on something different, or? What do you think that AI will have an impact on your business? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think the big win there is probably replacing the kind of data collection side of it. You know, um, we're doing all that manually still. We're going to get to a point where that can be all automated um, and, and pick up the kind of things that we're able to do manually that other people can't do. And then the big sort of jump in what we've done recently is the introduction of you know, our data science team, guys like Eric Eager and George Shahuri, um, you know, those people with a math background. You know, none of us that started this company really had a math background. We just knew football. We knew what we should be doing. And we had all this data, and we didn't really understand the best way to use it. You know, we, we were able to do a lot of useful things with it, but that was only scratching the surface of what it's capable of doing. Then you bring in these guys with a math background who were able to power other things using all this data and i think that's where the big developments are you know the analytics is not necessarily 
understanding just a basic raw number that may be different from other people. It's being able to use those numbers to power, you know, predictability and, you know, whether it's fantasy projections, whether it's gambling information and being able to exploit gaps in the spread, whatever it is, being able to basically predict the future using all of this data from the past. Yeah, it's, I agree because the future on football analytics is definitely bottom up. Uh, it's historically been top down. We observe what a team does in a game. Then we start observing what a team does in a play. But where we're going is we observe what 22 players do on a play. And um, that's going to give us better predictive once we figure out how to do it. It's really hard, but we'll eventually figure out how to do it. Sam, you talked about um, collecting data through some automatic way, so, so automated way. How are you all thinking about how you interact with motion tracking technology because you predate that stuff and you were the you were like you were the finest grain data available in multiple ways both at individual player evaluation level but also at the the chart data so who is where at what point in the play with motion tracking i mean you're at risk of being obviated right so how how do you navigate that how do you exploit that technology instead of being passed by it yeah, I mean, I think at the moment we're still in a good spot in terms of, you know, it's a useful check to, to our data, but it still has limitations. Um, you know, and I think at the moment people are trying to ask that data to do things that it's not really capable of doing. Um, what, so what's, it's an, what's an example, you, Sam? Yeah, it's great at telling you who was on the, the field at any given time and broadly what they were doing, but when you start asking it to tell you whether a quarterback was pressured or not, that can't necessarily be done just from proximity or even just from, um, you know, uh, alignment, just from the direction the guy is facing. You need to understand whether the quarterback felt it or whether he knew it was happening, you know, whether he saw it coming. These are the things that determine whether the quarterback was actually under pressure or not, not just whether a guy happened to be within a certain circle of him. Um, so now, Sam, let me, let, me, let me stop you there. So understand, I'm super sympathetic to the PFF cause. So just understand that and ask this question. Are you not at risk of sounding just like when you say what you just said? The coaches sound whenever you say you've got individual player evaluations for their scouts. It's like, ah, oh, you can't see this little subtlety here. It's like, well, you know, that may be true, but I've got a lot of data on a lot of plays, and on the whole, this is going to wash out. Uh, I, I don't think that we're... You know, I don't think that we're looking for intangibles here. I think that we're just adding a layer of information that isn't possible in, um, in the automated stuff. And it's not that the automated stuff is therefore bad, because you know, that, that's the argument we just made, right? It's, it's not that it's, it's useless because it, it has this blind spot. But the reason our stuff was successful in spite of this blind spot is there's nothing around there that covers up that blind spot and does it better. Yeah. So the reason that we are a step ahead of this automated stuff is that we don't have that blind spot. There's a few areas, you know, with this uh, automated tracking stuff that we're able to build a layer on top of that in addition to having all that information. So it's not caught up to where we are yet. It's just able to do it on an automated, on an automated level. And I think that's really true, you know, across a lot of spectrum of AI stuff. It's like, yeah, it's, it's making incredible inroads. It's taking huge steps forward. But there's a lot of things that you still wouldn't trust AI to do for you yet. Mm -hmm. I want to ask because you can still do it better, Sam. I want to ask a question about particularly about the AI of this. When you're judging, say for example, whether a quarterback is under pressure, and you're just watching the play on the video or live, 
Is that something that everyone kind of agrees on, or is there a certain amount of diff, you know disagreement about whether the degree and 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 uh, of the the quarterback's uh, pressure, or is that you know because AI is very good at doing things that human beings can do very well. They can replace you if human beings definitely agree. If there's a lot of noise, AI is not so good. So, what do you think about that question? Was and we can generalize it to where and what aspects of football is there the greatest disagreement? Because that would point right. us to Our the aspect subjectivity, of subjectivity, right? Yeah. Well, bodies operationalizing that as where where there is disagreement, there is subjectivity, and therefore it's difficult for AI to replace. So, where in your evaluation of a play or a team or an individual do you see the greatest disagreement? Because that would suggest where it's hardest for AI to jump in. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And no, there's there's not uniform um, agreement on all of these plays. And that's, I think, one of the reasons that our system is so robust that we have. So every single game that we do is, every process we do is a double-blind run, and then a third guy comes in and kind of coordinates the differences, and all the differences that they can't resolve get pitched to a you know an even more advanced group of sort of final decision-makers. And uh, what are concordances? One of those. Yeah, so a ton of those plays at the end, at the end of every week are pressure plays. It's whether this guy was got pressure or not. Um, but the, the subjectivity is everywhere in football, and people like to throw it around as a, a bad thing. You know, well that's subjective, so it must be useless. And you know, everything is subjective. Whether a guy dropped a pass or not is subjective. I mean, some of them aren't. Some of them are pretty simple. It hit him in the hands. It was an obvious drop. But there are plays in there where okay, it hit him in the hands. Um, but a defender came in and knocked it out. Now, some people call that a drop. Some people don't. That's subjective, but it doesn't make either side necessarily wrong if they're applying it the same way to every single play. Um, and, yeah, so there's a lot of areas like pressure, I think, is a big one. Um, coverage can be another one because those things are not necessarily black and white without, um, without being in the room and knowing the exact call. And, you know, there's basic stats, like I say, whether it's drops, whether it's uh, missed tackles, where the actual definition itself is subjective, so it's not necessarily that easy to just apply a blanket rule to those things. You know, PFF's grading framework is in, insanely extensive. The the grading manual, I think, is like 250 pages long. <laughs> wow. um, so, and, and it's a full time job of multiple people, in fact, to try and keep everybody on the same page and right. you know, reconcile all these differences. Right. And I think those are are reasons that are. Um, our numbers and our data is so strong. With some of this so, sort of systematic subjectivity that you're, you're talking about, with the kind of staff that you have, I'm sure you have people that have, you have a large amount of heterogeneity in terms of people who have maybe played the sport or had, you know, or versus somebody like me who has never played the sport but was an avid fan. Um, do you kind of notice that systematic subjectivity kind of sneaking into some of the ratings? I mean, I, the reason I bring this up, I heard, I think, Michael Irvin talking about, like, some catch that, that looked very difficult to me and he's like oh well if the ball if the receiver can put his hand on the ball then he should catch it that was his sort of evaluation so he has a very different standard from his own playing experience presumably on what a you know what is catchable what is not catchable do you kind of notice that among kind of the people that are rating your plays i mean i think one of the things we do again to try and stave off any specific individual biases creeping in is you know, make sure that all the games are separated and the guys don't do, you know, we don't have just one guy grading the Browns every single week because inevitably that guy is going to have a couple of opinions that slightly differ from the next guy. You know, they may be on the same page in 99 out of 100 uh, instances, but every that one instance, 
that comes up a few times in a season that's now warping the data. Um, so we try and make sure that everybody is sort of evenly distributed amongst all games. That's fantastic. Um, we, didn't, we didn't realize that. That's a, that's a great way to factor out one source of variation you wouldn't want in there. That's neat. Yeah, so right. Sa- and, sorry, go ahead, Sam. Yeah, and I think that's, that's part of it, right, is that we try and, and weed that out. And I think you do get guys that think specific ways, and we try and make sure that that sort of final group of review analysts has a bunch of different um, – Sort of guys in there that think slightly differently. You know, you have one guy that's a former quarterback and you know thinks one way about passes. You have another guy that played receiver and thinks a different way about how those passes should go. And you know, hopefully, collectively, that group is able to kind of neutralize each other's biases, um, however slight they may be. And again, make sure the data is as strong and then integrity is as, as high as we can make it. We're talking to Sam Monson. Sam is Pro Football Focus's lead NFL analyst. Most of you probably know who Pro Football Focus is, but they have become one of the lead providers of football analytics based out of Cincinnati and owned by Chris Collinsworth now. Eric. Yeah, Sam, I wanted to ask you, um, how much do you guys, this is something relating we were talking about just slightly off air. When you score something on Pro Football Focus, is it under pressure, not under pressure, or is it some graded scale? Like how... Or does it vary by the type of thing you're doing? I'm trying to understand, are you trying to extract very fine information when it can be done reliably, but not when it can't? I'm just, how do you think about, I'll call it the measurement scale of what you do? And in particular, how much is binary and how much is continuous? And how do you decide what's exactly. binary and continuous? So effectively, every play we have is graded on the same scale. So it, you know, the, every NFL team or most NFL teams use just a simple plus or minus scale. So on a play... Did you do your job, you get a plus. Did you not do your job, you get a minus. Um, one of the big things about our scale that differs from that is that we have an intermediate level. We have a zero, which is, I mean, you kind of did your job, but it was nothing we wouldn't expect every single player to do. Mm. So you, you, it's not good or bad, right? And this is where we, <clears throat> we run into it an issue at, at times when you talk to coaches because particularly on offense and defensive lines, and you see these guys and say, well, my guy kept his man in the, in the A-gap. That, that's his job. I give him a plus. They're like, yeah, but if you look at the defensive side, that guy's assignment was to stay in the A-gap. So they were both <laughs> just happy playing that cake. Right. And, you know, that's not a good play. That's just, of course he did that. So we're able to separate out those genuinely good plays from the plays that are just average and, and expected. Um, and then we take it a couple of steps beyond that as well. So our scale runs out from plus two to minus two at 0.5 increments. So plus two, 1.51, 0.50, et cetera, on either side. Um, and basically just depending on how um, dominant or important situationally the play was will dictate, um, will dictate the grade on that particular play. And then after the fact, we're able to come in and start to divide things up by like legitimate situations. So we try and grade every single play the same. And then after the fact, come in and say, okay, now show me the grade on plays where the quarterback was under pressure. Now show me the grade on plays where, you know, the cornerback had to cover for longer than five seconds right, or whatever. Right, right, Sam, a couple questions about how you've seen things evolve over time and where you think they're going. What is an example of an understanding you have about a position or a play or, or evaluation in football that's different than when you started? Like, what, What's an example of something you've learned, like how to better evaluate a particular position? And then going forward, what do you think the greatest opportunity is like right now? What, what, what frontier are you pushing, whether it's, you know, 
linebacker spacing or you know how tight a guy is covered or or separation by the receiver whatever it is like what frontier do you think is most promising in your evaluations what what frontier have you seen be very promising in the, in the past and what do you think is most promising going forward yeah i think there's a lot of things that have evolved as we've been going and our understanding of the game has evolved this is a great thing about having all these nfl team customers and all this resource is you can find so much more information you know before we would kind of be in isolation. We'd have to make some judgments, just our best guess on what we think happened or what we think a player was trying to do. And then you get all this additional resource and you have coaches able to tell you, okay, this is what was happening right. on this play. Uh, and this is why this guy was doing something that looked kind of weird from the film. Right. Um, so that's been a huge help. I think the biggest sort of sea shift in just the general thought process of the game in in the recent years has been this idea of, the impact of the running back and how, how little that guy is actually um, determining wins or losses. Well, more to the point, sort of how much he, the running back is a product of his environment, right. particularly the blocking in front of him. I think that's been a huge shift in, in how everybody is starting to think about the game of football, but certainly at PFF. You know, Sam, you real quickly, do you, do, you think that, do you think that has sunk in in the buildings as well. I think the the football community has gotten so much smarter in recent years, and that's taken as almost a given now. But I'm not. I don't know. I have no sense of how well that is appreciated or bought into. The announcers don't seem the, to get it. You know. <laughs> in fact, I mean, I just read. Who was it that said it was freaking Stephen Jones? Stephen Jones, after they lost last weekend, said, "Well, we usually win when Zeke gets 30 carries." Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's right. 1970s Monday Night Football stuff. And Stephen Jones is supposed to be the sophisticated one in that building, at least among the ownership yeah, I, group. Well, this, the statement is true. I mean, I know it's true. <laughs> That's the problem with it. Yeah. It's definitely still a work in progress. You know, there are certain teams I think that get it 100%, and then there are certain teams that are going to take a while to get there. And even, you know, Chris is such a great owner for this company because Chris is really smart. He loves this data, he loves embracing all the information. And, you know, nobody does more prep work than him in terms of coming up to these games um but he's inherently an old school football guy you know the guy played in the 80s um he's been talking to all these old school football guys for years so he's a great barometer in terms of what people are thinking yeah um and you know there are certain topics that we can broach with him and he'll understand immediately and he'll it'll change the way he thinks about the game and then there are certain things that you can see it's harder for him to accept. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and the running back thing is one of them, right? It, it, really? And he, really? he made a comment recently on Monday Night Football that it was along the lines of, you know, the running back, you don't typically win games with the run game. And and that, I think, was just this huge moment of, uh, you know, for it's it's changing the way he thinks as well. You know, and it's, and it's been a lot of work for guys like Eric and George to, to talk him through all these things every single day, you know, when he's in the building. And, and to see a guy like him start to come around, it kind of gives you an indication of how long it's going to take for the rest of the NFL, but that they will get there. You know, ultimately, they'll see the truth in what's being presented to them, and they all want to achieve the same thing. Uh, so I have one kind of quick question. Can you guys do, uh, can you guys do referee grading? <laughs> Would that? Uh, I mean, are you guys allowed? They do, they do that in baseball. A, are you guys allowed to do referee grading? Kind of. You what know, do you mean? W- w- would that be something that would get you in trouble? Because I think it, there would be a market for it. Oh I think people god. would be interested. Oh my god! I think there absolutely would be a market for it, especially this year. Um, and I don't. There's no reason we can't. It's not something we've done yet. But wow, with the way they're making a mess of this pass interference stuff, 
we honestly may have to do something because seriously, it's got a, it's got the potential to start affecting the grades negatively. You know, we kind of have to at the moment just almost roll with what's being called. We've always made some adjustments here or there for truly egregious missed calls, but those are everywhere now. So yeah, we we need to think about how we address that. So before, while we still have you, and before we run out the bottom of the hour, let's grab a phone call. We have Mike from Alabama. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hey, good morning, guys. I was wondering about modeling for um, the element of surprise and how conventional or unconventional teams are. Are there, are there ways that teams grade out or in their scouting the teams that they're going to play to figure out just how likely they are to do a quarterback keeper on his own read or like we saw in the Eagles game, a uh, pass from the kicker on a fake field goal? and to plan that way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Great question. Relevant. We're always talking about surprise in football, and we don't really understand how it gets talked about inside the teams. Adi's going to elaborate uh, this for a second. We, we know a little bit about predicting, basically, binary outcome, pass or run. And that's fairly forecastable, maybe 75 to 80% accuracy, mm-hmm. depending on the team. Some teams do are much more unpredictable than others. Mm-hmm. In terms of the specific play, I'll defer to other experts. Well, so, Sam, this is, again, this is kind of how you first got a foothold in the league, was to, was to give data to teams about their opponent's tendencies or even their own tendencies. So you would definitely yeah. have something to say about this. Exactly, and that's one of the things that NFL teams were most keen on. It was... Uh, understanding their opponent's tendencies, but also understanding their own tendencies and obviously where they would need to break them. And, you know, the the huge thing about PFF is that we're able to give you every single play data. You know, we're able to speed up the process, whereas before, teams only really had time to go back four games. And, you know, there were a bunch of teams out there that used to run these things on a sort of four-game cycle. Okay, It was like, we know they can only go back four games, so if we break our tendency every fifth game, we're fine. Um, and that oh, was really? kind of how they oh, operated. Wow. No kidding. But when you're able to, when PFF is now able to go back and show you every single play for a team over multiple seasons, now that becomes more complicated because you don't know if they went back, you know, the whole season to pull out of all of your data. You don't know if they went back last year to pull out all of your data. You have to work on the basis that they basically see everything you've done. Um, and can be able to pull tendencies from that. So, Sam, do you, do you see much variation in the league on interest in breaking your own tendencies? I mean, so this is, as a fan of a team, you know, you're always maddened by your coaches who seem to just be so predictable. You know, so there's something about the fan orientation. You probably see more predictability in your coach than there actually is. And then you see the opponent's coach do these things that are unpredictable. Now, I'm, I'm speaking a little bit as a Longhorn fan who just had to watch his team play Lincoln Riley who's considered probably the best <laughs> offensive mind in college football right now. But it does seem like there's variation in coaches' interest or even priority on breaking tendency. Do you, do you experience that as you talk to teams? Do you believe that? Is it, is it important? Is it a source of variation? Do you think it's an important source of variation? No, I mean, I think there's a variation with how teams treat everything, right, um, with, with all this stuff. I think that's the one thing you discover from working with, with all 32 teams is – the level of difference between each one of them is, is amazing. There are some teams out there that are on the cutting edge of all this stuff. It, it's throughout the building. Everybody has a piece in it. And then there are other teams where, you know, they, they've got an analytics department. There's a guy out there running numbers. He's great, but he can't talk to the head coach. Mm-hmm. You know, they can't get the stuff across this guy's desk. Or the head coach will only look at it if it's presented to him in a certain format 
you know, in a certain chart or, you know, a certain picture. And, and those are the things you have to battle with, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's one thing getting in the, in the door with these teams, but in order to help them maximize the use of all this stuff, you need to have the decision makers in the building, all of them singing from the same hymn sheet. So these mm-hmm. guys need to be on the same page. Some teams they are, and some teams they're not. Mm-hmm. 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 Terrific. All right, listen, we'll let you go. We really appreciate you taking the time to be with us this morning. We love the work that you guys do and appreciate always appreciate the chance to talk to you folks. Anytime, guys. Thanks for having me. You bet. Sam Monson, he is Pro Football Focus's lead NFL analyst. You can follow him. Great follow on Twitter, at PFF underscore Sam, at PFF underscore Sam. Sam Monson with Pro Football Focus. That has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning. Some combination of us are here. Shane, Adi, Eric. This is Cade. Two, three, four of us. We've lately been on a good run of fours. Well, I say that. That's my first time here in a month or so. But we're going to be on a good run now. Adi is going to be back momentarily. We're just off the phone with Sam Monson. Sam over at PFF. Always love talking with PFF guys. They're doing really good work these days. And not just pro football. They do college football as well. But um, there's just so much going on in football analytics, and it's good to have people, good organizations, putting resources into it, pushing the frontier out there, and that's one of them. And they've got the ear of every NFL team out there, and, and, and they're learning. And so they're not only influencing them, but they're talking to them and being influenced by them. It's an interesting dynamic. That was Martin Nawaga, sound engineer, bringing us up out of the bottom of the hour. Always here. Appreciate Martin's help. We've got open lines here in the last half hour. You guys can jump in here. Phone number is one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four. 942-7866. Give us a shout if you want to jump in. We had Mike from Alabama in the last half hour talking about surprise in football. You can also hit us up on Twitter at WMoneyBall is our handle there at WMoneyBall. Fellas, we didn't talk about an agenda for this half hour. I know we're going to get to professional football. Maybe we could, we're going to do games at the end of the half hour, but I'm curious to hear, you know, we've just been talking about NFL from a few different angles, CBA with Winston, some analytics. I got some other sports we could talk about. Well, let's hear them. What do you got? Well, I'm making a prediction right now. It's not really an over-under. We do Moneyball matchups at this time of the year, but I predict next year is going to be the year. One of the, let's even say big four, I'm happy to put Andy Murray back in there on the men's side is not going to win, are not going to win every major. Okay. So we've been talking about that for a little while. I know we have. You've got a strong position. I do. Why has that evolved into such a strong Well, position? because in the last half of the year, since the U.S. Open ended, and let's remember, by the way, Nadal beat Medvedev by the skin of his teeth. Yep. Medvedev has since won two tournaments since, by the way, including the Shanghai Masters last week, of which, let me just comment, Djokovic played in, Federer played in, and Medvedev won. And by the way, neither Federer or Djokovic were in the finals. So you say, well, they don't care. Well, there's the four majors, and then there's five or six Masters 1000 events. This wasn't they won a match out here in Villanova on the local courts. So we're now getting to the point where about half of the Masters 1000 events are being won by players not named Nadal, Djokovic, and Federer. So I really do think next year is the year where if I add up the 39-year-old Nadal, I'm taking injuries into account, 39-year-old Federer, I'm taking injuries into account for Djokovic. Mm -hmm. I'm taking the fact that Nadal doesn't play all of these tournaments. I do think a major is on the men's side is not going to be won by one of the big three. 
in that major, that in that prospective major that's not won by the big three, do you take Medvedev or do you take the field? I'm taking the field, but I'll also say I think what's changed is, this is the big thing that's changed, and the real reason I'm predicting this, I don't think you're going to have to beat all three of them, and here's what I mean. I think they could get eliminated by other players because we're now seeing the high-variance Djokovic. In other words, in Djokovic's case, mostly injuries, but not always entirely. He was purely healthy in, in Shanghai and lost. So I think what will happen is you could get a guy that may only have to beat one of the big three because they'll get right. picked off in earlier rounds. It's not such a definite, like, oh, my God, in the quarters you're going to have to beat Federer, and the semis you're going to have to beat Nadal, and the finals you're going to have to beat would, Djokovic. You, you would agree that this is probably, we're really talking about three majors. You would not expect the French. I mean, we're bank Nadal with the French, right? Um, I would bank Nadal with the French, assuming it's the healthy Nadal at the right, French. Right. Yes, so the I would bank him against at the that French. Would be a Nadal injury. But we have to account for that. Yeah. So did anybody see the highlights of this preseason Celtics game where their rookie went off behind the three-point line? It's so much fun. Chase it down. He hit eight. Carson Edwards, second-round pick out of Purdue, he was and a known great shooter. This guy's six foot six-foot guard, rookie. He hit eight three-pointers in a quarter last <laughs> night. He just completely went off, and they were they were full-on Steph Curry, like way beyond the arc, kind of. At least some of them were. I suggest you go track it down, and it'd be fun. You know, those the guys who can do that are so much fun to watch. It'd be fun if he could keep that going in regular well, season. Well, I games. mean, ask yourself: Are they really being guarded? I mean, in a preseason game, because that's you a, can ask yourself that in any NBA game. <laughs> well, that until the, until the playoffs. I mean, because three three-pointers are not as hard. They don't go down as a function of distance when you're not going. Well, you asked a good question. So it says well, that here. That can't be true. Well, it obviously goes down, but not nearly at <laughs> the rate says, that you'd like it to. It says here go. in the article that the, the person was 8 for 11. So let's, let's even take your premise as true that he was unguarded. What fraction, like if Steph Curry was left unguarded from three point line. 8 for 11 is no problem. No problem no at problem. all. No problem at all. So I agree with you. In other words, the question we should be asking from an analytics point of view is how much did that exceed? As a matter of fact, the good news is. Now, with motion tracking and other data, we can actually see to the degree he's guarded, and we can actually just compute an expected number that he would make given not just given the how the defender and how, how, how the defender. What makes Steph Curry so particularly good at three pointers? Obviously, he does good at all aspects of it, but when he's guarded and off balance, yeah. he's still very good. Yeah, and this is a, this is one of the frontiers in analytics right now in basketball is to get a better operationalization of when a guy is guarded or not. Because right yes. now, the, it's a little there's some argument about how well that's actually coded. Speaking of the Celtics and the local boys, I'm curious what you guys think the impact of having Al Horford will be for the Sixers. He's a famously good locker room guy, famously good ethic, famously good citizen. He, that's a that's kind of a role that, that the Sixers haven't had for a while. I'm Especially Eric, who's a season ticket holder and our local Sixers expert. What's your expectation for the team, and, and will Horford make a substantive difference? I think he'll make a difference. The number one thing, well, two aspects. The first I would say quickly is, when Embiid is off the floor, we actually have a guy that can play center and play center well. Last year, the drop-off, you guys even remember in the playoffs, yes. the, when Embiid was on the court, I'm making up a number. He would, The Sixers were plus 100. When he was off the court, they were minus like huge. A, it was 110. Like a, it was historically, like li- historically big, big difference. difference yeah. Really? I, yeah, historically yeah. big. I don't think that will happen when Horford is on the court. The second thing is, I just remember against him playing against Embiid and others, He's a great defensive player. 
And so now you're adding another great defensive player to Embiid, who a lot of people would argue is the best defensive center in the league. Certainly Ben Simmons, he better be a very good defensive player because he's a mediocre offensive player. Josh Richardson, who we picked up, was the defensive player of the year or one of the runner-ups for defensive player of the year. And Tobias Harris is known. So, I mean, I think he adds in that he's another great defensive-minded player. And I think the big issue is when Embiid's only playing 30 to 32 minutes a game, the other 16 minutes, I guarantee you Horford's going to be on the court at least 14 or 15 can, of those can 16. You, uh, can you quantify that a little bit for me? Obviously, points saved are equal to points made, but it's variance. So we know approximately what the variance is in the offense side between good, bad, um, exceptional, and on the defensive side, what's the what's the range in points? Uh, I mean, you talk about how Hartford, I mean, great. What is that? Is he saving compared to an, a mediocre or an average person? Is there a way to quantify I, that? I mean, I'm sure there is a way to quantify it. Here's the stats you see reported all the time. You Obviously, the obvious ones is when he's guarding a player, what shooting percentage they look at. So you could, wait, you could compute a differential in shooting percentage and compute an expected number of points scored. That would be just his direct impact. Obviously, you can compute things like plus and minus on the court. Obviously, they have offensive efficiency ratings. Well, you could have an offensive efficiency rating of opposing teams when Horford is on the court versus not. So you could take a look at that as well. So those are the metrics you hear today. Do you today. have any gut about size? Like in baseball, we typically think of the defensive side of things to being about 20% of the offense. I would, If I had to guess, I'm just saying, let's imagine you took Horford off the team, we looked across all 82 games and said, what's the Sixers' average number of points going to be different if mm-hmm. he were not on the team? Let's replace him with an average center, which maybe they had last year. I'm going to say the point difference on the def- points allowed, three. Three. That's that's a lot, actually. Three per game is three a lot. Is a lot. Yeah. I'm just you're guessing looking, looking somewhere around three. Because yeah. you're looking at, I mean, a, a good differential for a team is ten points, right? The, well, let's let's even just, very good. Let, well, let's just do you know, let's just do a little envelope math, which you know I love to do. Oh, we love it. Let's we all em- love it. Well, let's math. imagine he changes shooting percentage by five percent. That's a lot. But I think that's within the realm of possibility. Yeah, okay. He could turn a forty-five percent shooter into a forty percent shooter. I don't think that's out of the range. Let's even just take that math. You multiply that by the number of possessions in a game where he's guarding somebody, and and that player, and that player is the target of the opportunity. So maybe uh, three think, might be a, a lot. High. That sounds high. a little bit yeah. high because I was thinking about the total number of possessions. Right. But I have to say, yeah. it, when it's the guard on the other side of the feet, uh, of the court is getting the ball. Well, you could argue there's a slight effect of Al Horford because they're not going to throw it to the center, but that's third-order effect. Three sounds a, a little bit I'm, much. Just multiplying yeah, the number yeah, the of opportunities times, times the point. Times 20 would be uh, a lot, and that's one point. Well, yeah. no, well, that's two points a basket, so that's right. two points, so that's a lot. Three sounds like a little <laughs> much. Hey, quick, real quick, did, did y'all know that Seattle has, a, has an upcoming NHL team? Mm-hmm. Shane knew this. I didn't. Yeah. Of course, he knows that he's from Canada. <laughs> well, we always say he's our hockey expert. <laughs> Who did they replace? He doesn't always love the crown. Are they replacing anybody? No, it's an expansion team. They're doing another expansion. They're adding one. Hmm? So they're adding yeah. one team. So there'll yep. be an odd number of teams. Yes. Why do they need another team? I mean, NHL's not exactly, you know, crushing the TV ratings. Well, yes, though. I mean, recognize that the NHL, at least with this one, I mean, at least the NHL is kind of acknowledging that it's more of a regional sport than some of the other ones, and Seattle is, you know, close to Canada. <laughs> you know, and I also mean, Seattle, he's just, right. Seattle also is a very large city for having very few sports teams. 
Okay. It's kind of an open market, so, right? So by the way, I, also, the, you, I think you're more a little miscalibrated by what right. it takes to be profitable. I mean, a lot of minor league baseball teams, of which there's 350, make money. Well, and a, nobody it's, watches it's, them on TV. Open question. Open question on whether the NHL teams are profitable. That I don't know. But I mean, I mean, you, you hear about teams. I mean, they they haven't exactly been the, the 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 model of profitability in recent years. With teams moving, with teams threatening to shut down. The uh, by the way, they're going from 31 to 32, so they've been odd. Ah, yeah. So maybe that's one rationale for rounding this thing out. But one of the reasons I I share this is because they they get this guys. They hired an, a head of analytics months before they hired a general manager. <laughs> and and that head of analytics is a woman, Alexandra Mondricki. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that name correctly, but she came from the Minnesota Wild, and um, I'm not, that's not sure. Is Wild the name of their hockey team? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Okay. The, yeah, so you got it. She 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 came from those guys, and she had a say in their GM hire. It looks like they have hired now. Ron Francis is going to be their general manager. So a longtime Bruin, famous player, yeah. is going to be the general manager. But the the one of the owners up there was quoted as saying, this is this is Todd Lewicki, one of the owners out there, he says, analytics isn't just a department for us, it's a way of life. You well, know, I'm going to just point this out, that, that, that this is completely anecdotal, but it does seem, in my anecdotal experience with women in, an, in, in analytics, a disproportionate hockey. Just an observation. <laughs> Interesting. It's like... Well, our, our favorite, uh, uh, Namita Nandakumar, who's yeah, a... Hockey, hockey, yeah, hockey. my own local... She, she, kind of local she, association. She works for the yeah. Eagles, but she actually probably cares more about it. At least... And I've know. seen it or through Moneyball Academy, through our, students, through our students at Penn. Yeah. I mean, obviously, just disproportionate. It doesn't, obviously doesn't dominate baseball, yeah. baseball, football in total count, but... Fraction, it's it's odd. I'm curious about. That. I thought the I thought the fact you were going to bring up is that one of the owners appears to be the movie producer Jerry Bruckheimer. Mm. I thought you were just going to say he's going to be able to promote his movies to eight million fans. You know, forty <laughs> games, twenty thousand a game. All of a sudden, you know, he sells an extra half a million tickets. The investment's worth it. That's no, a five true. million dollar payoff he, right Jerry there. Jerry Bruckheimer is certainly a guy who suffers from lack of exposure. So <laughs> exactly, I, I, I'm glad he's got this new marketing opportunity. <laughs> Maybe there'll be a lot of explosions at Center Ice. Anything else from the NHL, is there anything notable about the season so far? I think it's a little early to kind of get too excited about things, but I mean, you know, I, I mean, I'm looking for sort of like some of the kind of interesting storylines that I'm looking for is, I mean, Las Vegas fascinates me. They've kind of, you know, they've been this, there was this expansion team that went to the two Stanley years ago, Cup. Went to the two Cup, years ago, yeah. yeah. And can Tampa Bay kind of replicate the success they had last season during the regular season, I think is kind of an interesting storyline. Okay. The East is always going to be, you know, kind of uh, an interesting, you know, as, as kind of, I guess, a an adopted Flyers fan, the East, I think, is always going to be okay. kind of an interesting part of the league for me. I'm always interested in how the Leafs are doing. So, big fan of Kyle Dubas, the general manager up there. I'm oh, under- they, I think they're looking very promising, actually. They started last year, yeah. they were very yeah. promising. Yeah, no, that's right, that's right. So, I mean, you know, whether they'll end up doing the kind of Leafs kind of thing, I feel like they, they're like the Detroit Lions of, of, of hockey or something like that, a team that, like, always has this potential and then that either... That is tragic. Either, you just compared is. the it Leafs is. to the Lions. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's about right. That's about right. <laughs> just in terms of long-suffering fans. You know, I think that's the right analogy. Do you see the that's... same amount of dispersion happening this year in hockey that we've noticed? Like, for example, we noticed in baseball there was a record number of 100-win teams. Maybe oh, the NFL... Like, what, what, like uh, I, you're really asking... Are the haves and, and, and haves-nots in hockey 
this and year. And to a certain extent, I, I kind of I the the reason I brought up Tampa Bay is I'm a little fascinated to whether we could get some sort of like histo- another historic. Is, is like there last sort of year. A, is there a systematic change in the NHL such that we're more prone to that type of thing? Um, like maybe with kind of tanking teams and stuff like that. That that is fascinating. I I I personally think no. I think Tampa Bay was kind of like a just out of nowhere outlier last year, and we won't see something like that again this season. But it would be cool if it did happen. Uh, as a, on an analytical note, I mean, hockey has made some great progress because they track uh, shot locations and they build mm-hmm. these expected value models. It seems to be there's a little bit of a brouhaha happening on Twitter that the markings have significantly changed this year yeah. and the locations they sh- are, are are interestingly different and they're all trying to figure out the bottom yeah, of this. But it, it screws up their analytics. Screwed right? up. So, <laughs> screws so, up so, your analytics. Some analysts have pointed this out and now the yeah. league is looking into it on whether, yeah. and this is the downside of all this technology, right? So mm-hmm. much of it is a black box to us and and the thing about if, a, if it's a bunch of humans doing things and a human gets something wrong, it's just one idiosyncratic error. But if it's a machine doing something and it gets something wrong, it's systematic and cuts yeah. across everything. Which is a lesson t- that you should we should take to heart. When when something changes a lot from one year to the next, a good potential culprit is a change in the technology yeah. or something mm-hmm. fundamentally biased okay, in the this, system. This takes us back to baseball. There was so much talk about balls being juiced, and now there's talk about the balls being de-juiced as they go into the playoffs. Is it systematic? Can we actually judge? Well, the problem is, is we don't actually track the flight of the ball from from bat to landing, you just get uh, an estimate of these things. And they're decently accurate, but not as accurate as you imagine. There are not that many balls in the postseason. They're claiming it's about four feet. It's also colder in, the, in, the, uh, in, the, in, the, in this season. And that makes a substantive difference. You have to, it's a lot of variables up in the air to calculate. Very, I'd like to see a standard error on those things. It, it sounds it, very conspiracy theory to me. It does, that, 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 yeah. That's one, right. one, they juiced it, and then they go, oh, let's de-juice and, it. And Major League Baseball's like, we just, these are just random collection yeah. uh, picks yeah. From the now they do stamp them um, postseason, but as they claim they're just a random choice from the from the balls of the year. Well, you know, you mentioned the Lions. Shane mentioned the Lions in this brutal comparison to the, the Leafs. But the Lions, I think, are in one of the more interesting games. But before we get to games, I'm curious as you look at the whole league, what stands out to you? Let me give you one observation in the in this week's Massey Peabody rankings, which are just going up today. There is a 22 point spread from the top team to the bottom team. That's obviously New England to Miami. However, there's only a 10-point spread between the second-best team and the 31st-best team. Hmm. So except for the best team and the worst team, they're all bunched within 10. But then the whole group requires 22. That's how far ahead the Pats are and how far behind the Dolphins are. It's really remarkable, the separation at the top and the bottom. And then you've got this like nice 10-point gap from from uh, right, so let me translate that anyone can beat anyone except for Miami and New England. Well, I don't want to make too big a deal out of everyone being within ten, but I think that's kind of interesting. What I most want to remark about is weird to have such a separation on yeah. the, by one team on the top and by one team on the bottom. But it's daunting to me to look at the Pats. We have the Pats at almost plus nine versus an average team on a neutral field. The next best team, we love the Ravens. We always love the Ravens for some reason. The Ravens at plus four point seven one. So the best team would be favored by on a neutral field by more than four points against number two. Number two, you have to go down to have them play something like, you know, the 15th best team to get a four-point gap. So is nine where you are with New England a typical max in a given year? It Well, it grows over the course of the year. As we get more information, we get more confident in how good these teams are. And So for uh, week seven. Yeah, that's a great question I don't have an answer to. So how how 
typical is not plus nine for the best team at this point in the season. But I think you're just pointing out that their exceedance above number two yes. appears to be atypical. Like in other words, how the big gap. the gap? The gap. Yeah. yeah. I'm yeah. saying the gap between them and number two is just large. And but that just, also suggests there's a bunch of folks in that next tier that are hard to separate. You know, let's just run through them real quick. The Ravens, Niners, Vikings, Rams, Texans, Chiefs. Cowboys, Seattle's coming. Philadelphia was there. They fall back, but all of those teams are within about two points. I think if you asked most fans, like besides the Patriots, who would be your next team to make it to the Super Bowl? I mean, obviously some of them are in the AFC, so they can't both be there with New England. But those other teams sound about right. I think most people believe there are six to eight other other teams that are just together. They're just clumped together. No, I mean I think a big part of the conversation right now is whether the NFC is kind of like more loaded with those teams than the AFC right now. That's right. That's exactly right. Well, let's break it down in a little more detail as we head into the home stretch. Moneyball matchups. All right, in just a quick few minutes, Eric, want to give us a spin here? Well, so we each get to pick a game, and so, Adi, which game has caught your eye this week? We'll take maybe half a minute each, and then we'll just briefly comment. Patriots Jets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, quite, quite you the are masochist. <laughs> well, I mean, they're gonna. I, the Jets are gonna lose, but they're gonna make it closer than we expect. Uh, the divisional ground, uh, divisional games are always close, and, the and Jets they always, always Jets the, always yeah. played the patch tough. Agreed, and I'm looking for agreed, Darnold with agreed. a healthy spleen. Uh, the point spread is like ten or something. <laughs> yeah, it looks like. I, I would, I would take, uh, I would take the Jets with that kind of point spread. Oh, wow. All right, Shane, what has caught your eye this week? Well, I think we. I'll, I'll go with the one that Cade kind of referenced, the Vikings Lions game. I think. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think every single NFC North game is intriguing this year because that sure. division is so. And every you know, team's at 500 or above. To, yeah, every team. And I mean, the Lions got robbed last week and went from first to fourth, basically, in one fell swoop. And I think the Lions have been playing every single team that they play tough. I think it will continue with the Vikings. I think the Lions finally. They redeem themselves a bit and beat the Vikings at yeah, home. That's the most old school division we have. It's always fun. Yeah. When those teams are good, it's just fun because it's so old school NFL. Running? I'm gonna go I'm gonna go with the late game, uh late afternoon game on Sunday, Baltimore, Seattle. That's the game I noticed we, as well. We have Baltimore number yeah. two, which is overranked according to many people. And then Seattle's really been coming on strong. Russell Wilson, many people talking about him as the MVP this season. So far, you know, through six games, the MVP. We have the Ravens, you know, that that's a three and a half point line. The Seattle's favored with the home field. We think it should be, you know, closer to a push. And so we got a little bit of an edge there on the Ravens. Can the Ravens live up to that? It's it's gonna be very interesting to see. Yeah, no, you know, I just have to pick the game. I mean, it's not a Buccaneers game because they're off this week, thank God. Um, I have to pick I have to say <laughs> Eagles Cowboys, right? I mean Yeah, um, that's gonna be a really interesting well, game. I mean, obviously a couple weeks ago people were like the Cowboys are gonna run away with the division. Right? I mean, that's what most people thought. At one point, the Eagles could have been two or three back. They're both tied at a mediocre three and three. It's a battle of two teams that have not played particularly well up until now. <laughs> and, 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 and I think, and I think it's a you know, huge game. No, yeah. it's a huge game also because as what's transpired over the last weeks has transpired. I mean, basically, it's much more likely now. I think than when we were looking a few weeks ago that whatever team loses out on that divisional race will not make the playoffs. will not make the playoffs so that's a three-point line cowboys are favored where are you guys with that uh, this is sunday night cow- i mean they both have looked looked so terrible last week it's kind of hard I, I i take the eagles myself eagles yeah 
Eagles, of course. <laughs> that Jets-Cowboys game I saw at a bar in Philadelphia, it's always fun to watch a Cowboys game in Philadelphia because no, you know, the next best thing to pulling for your team was pulling against the hated. Yeah. And especially once the Eagles got routed, it was good to see that the Cowboys <laughs> lost yeah. supposedly a gimme to the Jets. <laughs> right, right. All right, fellas, that has been another two hours, another Wharton Moneyball from the whole team here, Cade, Adi, Shane, Eric. Many thanks to Matty D, boss man, to our assistant, assistant producer, Zach, to our sound engineer, Martin, to our whole team, to Dion in the back, pounding the bonbons. We appreciate the spiritual support. Dion, you guys come back and join us next time. Between then and now, enjoy your sports. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.